0: Peter Falk is Mikey.
1: I got a terrific suggestion for you, Nicky. I suggest you find somebody you can trust.
0: John Cassavetes is Nicky. They're gonna kill me,
1: Nicky. They're gonna kill me.
0: Mikey and Nicky. On a night like this, there are no rules. You give me that in 30 seconds. You hear me or I'll kill you. I'm gonna die. You're not gonna die. What do you think they're planning? To shoot you in a movie house? Mikey and Nikki.
1: I'm really getting the treatment tonight. Tonight's my night.
0: On a night like this, there is no trust. They're gonna kill me. Honey, I'm serious now. Well,
1: I'm not interested. I'm coming with you.
0: There is no time. for a fact they
1: You are not gonna die.
0: On a night like this, there is no choice. Thank you for tuning in to this special episode of Movie Geeks United. Elaine May's Mikey and Nikki is an underrated classic of 1970s American cinema. Released in 1976, the film stars Peter Falk and John Cassavetes as the title characters two lifelong friends and small time mobsters operating in Philadelphia. Cassavetti's Nicky has stolen money from his boss and has a hit put out on him. So he calls up his best friend, Peter Fox, Mikey, to help him out of his predicament. Little does he know that Mikey has been tasked with delivering his friend to mob justice. This stunning movie is completely devoid of romanticism. Coming from the penetrating gaze of Elaine May, the legendary actress, writer, and director who's primarily associated with her work in the comedy world, the film explores depths that are entirely unique to the crime genre, the long-gestating frictions between two friends who share far too much history, the nature of toxic masculinity, and the wounds that hide behind the suspicious glances and tough-guy chatter. Patrick Cooper has written a new book about the film titled, aren't you going to die someday? Elaine Mays, Mikey and Nicky: An examination, reflection and making of, we highly recommend the book and it can be purchased wherever books are sold. Tell me where this obsession with the movie started for you. It started when, well, when I first
1: saw the film, I was in college. So this was maybe about 2003 and I was just sort of going through a deep dive into seventies crime cinema um, everything from the big names like The Godfather all the ways down to, you know, busting with Elliot Gould, things like that. <laughs> and the, the the films about gangsters, sort of the, the, the gang bosses, the crime lords never really interested me. I was always attracted to the low men on the totem pole, if you will. Um, I, I like to call them the gangsters that actually work for a living. So I came across Mikey and Nikki and I honestly didn't think too much of it at first. I mean, I love Falk and Cassavetes. I wasn't really familiar with Elaine May's other work at the time, but something about the film really just, it was almost like a song. I couldn't get it out of my head, the dialogue, the beats. um, It was almost like a melody that was just stuck in my head over the years. So I just continued to watch it. And each time something would be revealed to me about the characters and The lies that they tell each other and that they tell themselves and um, eventually just As a way to sort of get it out of my head. I started writing this book and um, Eventually got it published did
0: did the process of writing it. What did it crystallize for you in terms of? Why am I so attracted to this film like did you understand why? uh, The reasons why a lot lot better when you reach the end of the book
1: Yeah, absolutely it started as just an exploration of well why am I why can't I get this film out of my head? And very early on it, it became apparent to me is I ha I, I feel a very personal connection to this film and the reason for that being I feel like I see myself in both Mikey and Nikki in the Falcon Cassavetti's characters I see friendships that I had over the years. Um, in the book, I focus on one friendship in particular. I don't say the person's name, but there is a lot of parallels between Mikey and Nikki's relationship and this relationship I had growing up into adulthood, um, until it eventually broke off. Um, not in such a violent manner as the the friendship ends in the film, but, um, and we weren't criminals or anything, but just the <laughs> manipulation and the sort of leeching off one another and resentment and everything. It, it was all very personal for me as I was writing this this book. And just it's a, a pretty fascinating behind-the-scenes story. And there were so many big personalities involved and behind-the-scenes clashes between Paramount and May. Um, that, that, that So that, that effort was very fun to write. But it was a very to be honest it was a very dark place to be the year i spent writing this book um it was a very dark world to live in uh because of the content of the film itself and then the sort of the the, the shadows it drug up in my own personal life looking back on this friendship i had
0: yeah that friendship is i mean it's it's everything to the movie um yeah how how would you describe the dynamic between them because on on one hand they have such an enormous history together uh from, right. from from the time they were children and yet um yeah. they they clearly are uh kind of toxic for one another right
1: and i think we've all had friendships like that uh maybe not to that degree but i think it's the dynamic is one of depending on one another but also there's just this unspoken jealousy between them. Um, I think in a way Nikki is jealous of Mikey's sort of calm domestic life. He has a, what seems like a happy marriage. Um, he has a, a child, a son that wants to see him when he comes home versus Nikki's, you know, disruptive sort of, uh, personal life he has with his wife, Jan. And he's not a lot, he, he barely knows his, his newborn daughter, but, um, so I think it's one where they resent one another. They're, they depend on one another. Mikey wants Nikki to love him. Nikki, you know, he just wants everyone to love him. And if he has to throw Mikey under the bus or make fun of him in front of other people and talk about him behind his back, that's what that's the type of guy he is. That's what he'll do to make people laugh. So they like being around him. But then when he's alone with Mikey, it's all you know, kissing each other's asses. But, you know, under that surface there, there's, there's just decades of resentment.
0: Yeah. It's interesting that the tagline of that movie that the studio went with, what was it? You you won't like them?
1: <laughs> but, yeah, that was the, the the original tagline. I believe it was uh, by the end. It was something like, by the end of the film, you won't like them. Something <laughs> like that, yeah.
0: Wow, come see our movie. <laughs> <laughs> yeah.
1: You're going to have an awful time, and you'll hate the characters.
0: Yeah, what was the thinking behind that?
1: I don't know. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure by that point, Paramount just put a few ads out there. And they put it out Christmas 1976. What a perfect Christmas movie. Um, I think they just wanted to be done with it at that point and done with May. Wow.
0: Well, let's, let's get into the difficulty, uh, but I guess let's start with how it started for her, because this seems on the outset uh like a really uncharacteristic film for her because she she comes from yeah. the, from the world of comedy and you know a lot of her comedies have great bite to them but this was on mm-hmm. uh, like a different plane where, where did this story occur yeah. to her
1: well there's a few different versions of the story um of the origins of the film um there's a great book about the history of the improv troupe that Elaine May was in in Chicago called uh, the compass players. Um, that's where she met Mike Nichols. But, um, according to one of her colleagues in that improv troupe, um, she had a first drafted this script all the way back in 1954 when she was, I believe she was 22 years old. So it came from a very personal place for her. Um, And Julian Schlossberg, who would later go on to re-release the film, says that it involved, it came from a place of her family. Uh, She knew people like this. Um, She had told Peter Falk that it, it was something that did happen to her relatives. And also her cousin, I believe it was her cousin, was her assistant on the film. And her cousin had told a Paramount publicist that it was something that she drew from a story that, her uncle had told her when he owned a bar in the forties, and something happened to two individuals at the bar, so she drew it from that um and you're right it it is a very uncharacteristic film for her um but also on another level, it's also sort of fits in with the themes of her other films, which is betrayal um there's always a pair in one of her films yeah. from a New Leaf, which is Walter Math Allen herself, um, there's a betrayal there. Same in The Heartbreak Kid, although she didn't write that one. And then also in Ishtar, it's two best friends that go on to sort of betray each other in a way as well. So while it is uncharacteristic, I think that's, that, that theme is still there, which is betrayal.
0: Um, did she have, when she was growing up, did she have any kind of exposure to these lower-level mob guys herself?
1: That's what I heard. Um, that's what Julian Schlosberg had said, was that her family was involved in the mafia to some degree, uh, sort of on the outskirts of it in a way. Um, I don't know any particulars, and she doesn't talk to anybody. She doesn't give interviews. I really try to. Um, so I'm sure we'll never know exactly. But as far as from what I can tell, it was people that she knew that sort of inspired this story.
0: mm. So if if, yeah. if if she had been working on the script for that long, were there prior kind of lives that this movie took before it finally got off the ground? I mean, did she have previous casting ideas in mind, or did she try to mount it before she got it off the ground? Um, I know it
1: had started, when she had started writing it, it was a one-act play, and then it evolved over time. And I believe that, before she signed a contract with Paramount to do it. It was supposed to be made by another company, um even before A New Leaf, I believe, but then that fell through and then she wound up doing a New Leaf. Um and her first two films, A New Leaf and Heartbreak Kid, were both critical successes. And uh so by that point Paramount was just pretty much gave her a slate to do whatever she wanted. So she went to Mikey and
0: Nicky. Mm. And it almost feels like uh, it's unimaginable without Cassavetes and Falk um, because because they had obviously already engaged in this working relationship slash close friendship, and so you really feel the life between the, the lines in the movie. Yeah, it's there. Yeah. It's
1: there. And if I could backtrack for a second, actually, I know that Charles Grodin was initially going to be Nikki. Okay. Um they he even read with Cas or he read with Falk. Um and Falk said that he was scary. He was he came off as too scary if you could imagine Charles Groden as that. <laughs> um wow. but eventually uh it, it came down to Cassavetes and Falk. And you're absolutely right. That history is there and I talk about it in my book. They don't even need to speak mm-hmm. and you just you, 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 there's just the air is so thick between them, not just with tension because you know in context, Mikey's setting Nikki up to be killed, but just that you just feel that history and that that scene in the bar for instance when they're just killing time and Mikey's waiting for the phone to ring, and th- I think it's there's almost a minute that goes by of them not talking to each other. Nikki's just sitting there smoking at Mikey, and just the facial expressions, everything is just, it's so mm-hmm. palpable. It's, it's so, it's incredibly strong. They yeah. were, they're just like the absolute best of saying, of saying so much without speaking.
0: Did they, did Falk and Cassavetes, did they talk about the experience of working with, with Elaine May and, and what she did to kind of take advantage of, of, of their camaraderie?
1: Yeah. May really let them just go off. She gave them a lot of freedom um, from what I heard, she was the type of the type of director that she wanted people to say to the script. Um, that's something I think that surprises a lot of people about this film, um, that there wasn't everything you hear on the film is, is in the script pretty much. Um, I'd say 90% of it. Um, so while I think she did let them experiment a lot, There was also just sticking to the script. Um, Cassavetes was notorious for going off script to try to see what reaction he would get from his co-stars. And May didn't like that. She would would make him stick with the lines. Um, Mm -hmm. But she would continuously roll. She rarely called cut. Um, There's stories about on this film where the film actually ran out in the camera and she would not call cut because something so powerful was going on. And then eventually the cameraman would say, Hey, we're not even getting this. Um, Hmm. so there was a lot of freedom. She let the actors move wherever they wanted to, which was hell for the focus, uh, people behind the camera. She, there there is a story where she bit, I don't know if you read this one, but she bit Peter Falk on the lip, um, (laughs) in order to enrage him before his fight with Cassavetes in the street. Hmm. Um, they had they had stopped filming. I think it, 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 they had stopped filming overnight, and Falk just couldn't get back in that mind space. He couldn't get that anger up again in him. So Elaine called Cut and called him over and uh, drew him in real close, like she was going to whisper to him and then bit him on the ear, or uh, bit him on the lip and pushed him out there and called action. So I think she she had little ways to get actors going, but for the most part, I think there was a lot of uh, freedom. As long as they as long as they
0: said the lines yeah there's there's you know Cassavetes has this kind of uh, antsy uh, wounded vulnerability I mean he almost uh, mm-hmm. looks like a scared little kid a lot of times and then Falk has this great yeah. this great power and intensity and this is this is uh, prime uh, Columbo Falk I mean this is he, he's yeah. he's the beloved guy on everyone's TV set Yeah. Uh, and he's mm-hmm. playing this very volatile character. It's, it's He's terrific. Yeah.
1: No, absolutely. I agree. Um, Cassavetti's I mean, he looks sick
0: through the yeah. whole movie. He looks like he's ill.
1: And Falk, yeah, Falk is just so commanding, especially in those early scenes. And then he starts to come off the rails a little bit, and you just see him sort of for the pathetic character that he is. He just wants people to love him. His wife doesn't really pay attention to him. His father didn't love him. Uh, and his best friend treats him like trash, and so he goes. He goes from oh, this is the guy to call when you need someone to depend on, to oh, this guy's a sucker. This mm. is why you call him because he's the guy that's going to answer.
0: Yeah, there's, it's fascinating that the movie. Well, first of all, that you know we've seen a lot of glamorized mob movies, some of which are terrific, but um, but yeah. this is this is like a the the working stiffs. Uh, in the organization, but it's also unique because these guys are seen through a, a female gaze, which is really unique for this genre of film. And I'm wondering, she doesn't, uh, she doesn't seem to pass judgment on them. She, but she seems to be very clear about who they are and what their faults are. And I'm, I'm wondering from you what you think that female gaze is uh, that she brings to this.
1: Yeah, absolutely. And she definitely doesn't sugarcoat the way they treat women. I mean, all the women in the film are treated very poorly. Um, to, 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 I mean, to a physically abusive and a sexually abusive level. Um, there's some scenes in this, uh, particularly between Nikki and his mistress Nellie played by Carol Grace that are just incredibly uncomfortable to watch that to the point where I used to fast forward, um, those scenes. Um, so I think what may brought to it was a lot of honesty and a lot of she, 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 I don't think she had to go out of her way to do it because these are the type of characters they are. So she just showed, she just held a mirror up to sort of these men that are in a very masculine physical world. And I mean, masculine here in a very negative manner. Uh, they, they treat each other horribly and step on each other's throats and they treat their women horribly. Um, so I think she brought a lot of honesty to that and you really learn a lot about the characters of Mike and Nikki by the way they treat their women mm-hmm. and the interactions they have and from, you know, Nikki picking up the woman in the bar or trying to pick up the woman in the bar to him throwing his wife on the couch and slapping his mistress. Um, yeah. You don't like them by the end of the film. That's the tagline.
0: So. There you go. I guess that's where the tagline comes yeah. from. <laughs> Yeah, but at the same time, I think maybe people might have been turned off. Turned off that she she doesn't seem to impose her own kind of giving a sermon to these characters. She's just observing them and all of their flaws and not not commenting, right. not putting a, a kind of an aside. Look how awful these people are.
1: Right, and they're not Nikki's. Nikki's not killed because he's horrible to women. Mm-hmm. The, the the you're right. There is no judgment there. This is just – this is how they treat women, and he's going to die anyway because of Mikey setting him up and the way he double-crossed cro- his boss, Resnick. Um, yeah, you're right. There is no judgment there, and I think maybe that can put definitely a, a sour taste in some people's mouths. Um,
0: yeah. that's, that's indicative of a lot of the great 70s cinema we love too. I mean the, there's, there's mm-hmm. this kind of devotion to showing things as they are. Uh, without any yeah. kind of editorial commentary on it, you know.
1: Right. But, yeah, and uh, that and that carries off the screen and the way you feel about these films, you know. Yeah. I didn't like writing. I don't like writing about the scenes where Nikki's abusive right. to Nelly, you know.
0: But the, the movie feels so uh, a part of of the Cassavetti's canon, and obviously when, yeah, when when Elaine came up with this idea, it was before. Uh, Cassavetes really took hold and created his own brand of filmmaking, but it really feels like an extension of that brand, Mikey and Nicky. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I, I think it's often confused for a Cassavetes film. Mm. Um, I've seen that, uh, online before people call it a Cassavetes film. Um, yeah, there is that element of just that macho ness to it. And, uh, These women caught in the crosshairs, left at home, um, and sort of that – there's a feeling that it is improv, but it's
0: not. Yeah, which is Um, amazing. That's an amazing fact.
1: uh, (laughs) I I was so shocked. I got – it took me a little while to get a copy of the script, but I eventually got one from the producer, Mike Hausman. Um, He made a copy of his script, which is dated 1972, and it's all there. Wow. I mean – Almost word for word, some of the scenes. Yeah, there's some deleted scenes, um, but for the most part, yeah, it's there. It's all it's all on the page.
0: Yeah, with amazing, and because these are, they feel like totally spontaneous performances. Like actors talk about being in the moment. These two performances are really in the moment, and uh, yeah, and so you would think that it would be improvised, but I mean, they're just time vault performances. Um, yeah. Why did the movie have the movie had a couple of DPs, right? It had, I I think, six
1: altogether. Why is Um, that? (laughs) (laughs) uh, People just couldn't. uh, Well, I know the big one uh, was Victor Kemper, um, who had actually worked with Cassavetes on Husbands um, just a few years, or a year prior, I think, before they started shooting Mikey and Nicky. But it was just constant clashing with May, um, from what I've heard. Um, Victor quit, and then they had another DP... I forget his name. He had an eye patch though. I know that he would wear an eye patch behind the camera. Uh, he was the one who tried to tell her that the, the, the camera was out of film and may just want to let him stop pretending to be shooting. Um, and then eventually Paramount sort of tried to rush things along. So they forced May to shoot the remainder in Los Angeles. They moved her from Philadelphia to Los Angeles. Um, but she still had stuff to do in Philly. So they sent, um, the crew out there and Cassavetti shot some of the film. And then the producer, Mike Hausman shot the scene where Nikki, uh, all the shots from inside the car where, um, the hitman, Kenny is circling Mikey's house, uh, before dawn, Mike Hausman shot all that stuff. Um, at that point, it was just a matter of, let's just finish the goddamn movie and do what we (laughs) have to do. Yeah.
0: Uh,
1: before Paramount tears it from May's hands.
0: But you would think that it would look like a mess. With all, with all of those different heads yeah. in there, but it does it. It's very seamless. And that's interesting how yeah. she, she would let a take go on, almost like she was letting them work it out. It, it almost feels like a, a, yeah. a like psychoanalysis, <laughs> psychotherapy or something.
1: <laughs> yeah, and she did have a psych, uh, psychology background, and she wound up marrying her therapist. So I think there was a lot to that. Yeah, I think you're absolutely right. Um and from what I've heard, there was a lot of letting Falk and Cassavetes get to those moments that you see on the film. There would be a lot of just dis- not rehearsal so much as discussion yeah. uh, before they would go before they would go to the set. Um, sitting in May's trailer, just the three of them and just discussing the scene and discussing the motivation behind the characters for that scene, probably I would assume discussing the history behind the scene and the history behind what they were going to discuss. And so from what I've heard, there was a lot of that, a lot of the crew waiting around, mm. getting ready to work, just standing there. Um, Mike talking to Mike Hausman, the producer um, who has had an incredible career um, with Milo Forman amongst other people. Um, when he talks about this film there, he he talks about just so much waiting and so much just trying to do his job and sort of just constantly being stopped by may who just wanted to talk about the film and, and get things right.
0: Yeah. That's, that's incredible. I mean, just that level of just care about what you're doing, you know? Um, Yeah.
1: And like, and like we said, she started writing this in her twenties and, uh 30 almost 30 years i think went by where this movie was in her head so not only did she know what she wanted it it meant a lot
0: yeah but she didn't what what was it paramount that released it you said
1: yeah it was paramount
0: so they they weren't kind of enchanted by her indulgences
1: (laughs) (laughs) it got it got to a point where not so much um the heart. I'm surprised they worked with her because they also re- released a new leaf, her first film, which was also I think it was ten months of editing, um, and she eventually turned in I think a three hour cut of the film. So I don't I, I don't know why they were so keen to work with her again. Probably because Heartbreak Kid was a success and had an Academy Award nomination. Um, so with Mikey and Nikki, yeah, they were. I think they were excited to work with May again, but then. Yeah. The shoot was supposed to finish summer of 73, I believe it was, and it went from May 73 to March 74, so almost a year. There was a break so Falk could shoot a season of Columbo um, during the summer. but And then you're talking almost two years of editing, a million and a half feet of film for a 90-minute little crime movie. Wow. So that there was lawsuits involved. Uh, they, because May did have final cut of the film that was in the contract, and the contract was 33 pages long. They tried to Paramount really tried to cover all of their bases to make sure that they could actually get this movie made in a timely manner. Um, but they did give May final cut, so there wasn't much they could do. So there was lawsuits involved. In uh, 1975, they sued. Then she countersued um Peter Falk and her created a sort of a shell company that they that may went ahead and sold the US distribution rights behind Paramount's back to this shell company mm. um so Paramount had to sue to get that back and then there's the infamous case of the missing reels of film um I don't know I've heard a few different versions so I'm not sure how truthful it is but apparently may had her husband at the time uh i believe it was her husband it might have just been her boyfriend at the time but i'm not sure but uh her partner at the time she had him go and hide the reels of film in his garage in connecticut and there was some well i guess what you could call blackmail involved she was basically blackmailing Paramount for more money to finish her editing on the film. Mm. Um so they had a, they reached an agreement. Warren Beatty even got involved at one point. He was friends with both May and Barry Diller who was the head of Paramount and he tried to sort of mediate uh the arrangement to get the film made uh to get the film completed, I'm sorry. And um yeah, so there was a very tumultuous uh, post-production process wow. on this film.
0: That's a lot of drama. That must have been great for you, though, in the process of research, knowing you're having to fill up an entire book, that you have all of this drama.
1: (laughs) Yeah, Yeah. and I I do come from a, I was a history major in college, so I enjoy research and I enjoy putting puzzles together. So this was was all of that, um, having to talk to a few different people to try to figure out the actual facts of uh, the editing process. It turns out and I think this is, I think this is the way it was is it it wasn't a matter of Elaine May being this sort of crazy perfectionist in the editing room. Um, there, There was a million and a half feet of film. So there was a lot of work involved, but it was also may has said this herself that it was all because of the audio track. That's why it took two years to edit this film is because there was two audio tracks. Uh, I'm not very good with technical side of film, but there was two audio tracks and getting them to match the actual, you know, lips of Falk and Cassavetes was incredibly time consuming. Hmm. So actually getting it where it looked like the movie made sense, like the dialogue matched the film is apparently what took two years to complete. Wow.
0: Wow. How was it? received? Yeah. How was it uh, received? Uh, generally, when it came out?
1: There were a handful of people who praised the film right off the bat. Um, It was called A Masterpiece, uh, I think, in The New Yorker. But, of course, a lot of people were expecting an Elaine May comedy, you know, a a cut-up from the woman from Nichols and May, you know? Um, And she was worried about that, I've heard. Um, Falk was also worried about it. He gave an interview before the release of the film, sort of sweating how people were going to want to, go into the theater and see a comedy and go see this very dark, um, very honest film that came from a very personal place. Yeah. Um, it was, so the, for the most part, it was not received well. Um, it was called rambling. It was called a celluloid death wish, 90 mm-hmm. minutes of Falk and Cassavetes acting at you almost as this, almost as if they're acting with some kind sort of violent aggression toward the audience. <laughs> So, no, it was not received well.
0: (laughs) Wow. How much of that do you think was uh, the notion that uh, Elaine May is, you know, kind of wading in male waters? Like she's making a movie that's very, like, very much about masculinity.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Um, That's a good point. I think the, the yeah, there definitely could have been some of that. There could have been some pushback because how dare this female comedian uh, try to make a gangster film?
0: Mm. Yeah, you know it's so it's so shocking now though. I mean, this movie, I know it's grown in popularity and uh, and you've written a book about it, and obviously, Criterion releasing it on their platforms is. Is doing uh, a, yeah a, a, thank god a, 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 yeah yeah uh so it's it's coming back to the fore but uh as much as we romanticize 70s cinema it seems odd that mikey and nikki is often ignored in that conversation
1: yeah and i i've i'm a great consumer of 70s cinema cinema especially 70s crime films i love them dearly but even mikey and nikki with uh, on the shelf with all those 70s crime films just feels different like it might just be my personal feelings for the film, but it just feels different. It just Mm -hmm. feels dirtier than any other crime film. It feels more honest. Um, And I mean, we're talking about a crime film where there's no crime in it. Basically.
0: That's right. Uh,
1: Up until the, up until the very end where you, I, I hope people listening have watched the movie, but up until the very end, when Nikki is killed, there's no crime in this film. It's a lot of sitting around talking, and exposing you know their feelings to each other um yeah. double speak and you know it's a crime film with no crime basically. it's it's
0: but it's it's even though it doesn't have that criminal element it really mm-hmm. it's still very violent i mean it, 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 it in in terms of yeah. be, behavior you know yeah
1: yeah from and, and a lot of that violence in the film is against civilians Mm-hmm. You have Mikey attacking the clerk at the little cafe. You have Nikki attacking the bus driver and, you know, uh, making fun of the woman on the bus. And,
0: and the two and of, then of, course two the of them constantly at each other's throats. And, you know, it's just it's very <laughs> <Yeah>. aggressive movie.
1: <laughs> yeah, it is. And their fight in the street is. So, uh, you talk about the honesty of the film. They're they're fighting the street. You could tell it's been boiling up for decades and it's such a sloppy fight. There's no clean punches. Nikki just slips on the cement. Like, it's, Mm. it's such a wonderful fight scene. You know, you know there's really something wrong with you. Don't you have any notion of anything that goes on outside your own head? Don't you have any idea how people feel? Can't you understand that my father gave me this watch? It's the only thing i have for my father so what do you want you want well, another one forget it huh mike hey, i'm going hey okay, mike i'm sorry about the watch take your gun and i'm sorry about the girl too what, what else you want me to say nothing i don't want you to say anything i just don't want to do it anymore what be your friend then i'll be your friend No, you'll be my friend when you're not in trouble. See, I don't want you to be my friend just when there's nobody else around. What are you talking about? I'm your friend when other people are around. No, you're not. You don't know who I am when other people are around. I spoke to you maybe five times since you met Dave Resney. I introduced you, I got you the job, and now I can't get you on the phone. What are you talking about? Hey, what are you talking about? <laughs> are you crazy? I call you and you never call me back. You don't call me. You haven't called me in months.
0: I don't know how many interviews she's done over the years, very few I know, but um did she has Elaine uh, yeah. May given any indication of how how that how that movie ranks with her if she if she was very pleased with how it actually came out? You know,
1: I, I, there's nothing I, and you're right. I think she's done two interviews in the past 60 years. Um, but as far as I know, I, I don't know. I don't know how it ranks with her. I think it was something that I think it's a film that she had to make that it was extremely personal and she needed to get it out. Mm -hmm. Um, but I, I I don't know. She, I don't think she's, she's one of those filmmakers and one of those artists that just is not like talking about her work.
0: Yeah, she's very elusive. You you actually live near Philly, right?
1: Yeah, I'm out in the suburbs, about um, 15 or so miles uh, north of Philly.
0: Have you ever tried to scout some of the some of the Mikey and Nikki locations?
1: I did. I went to the location where you first see Mikey on the film. It is at 13th and Filbert Street, very close to City Hall. Um, that's actually where if you look in the book that's where the author photo was taken i i, I thought that would be appropriate mm. but it looks very similar all the lights hanging uh in that walkway are all the same so it was very cool to be back there where you first see Mikey on film when Nikki throws the uh the bottle wrapped up in the pillowcase out the window at him
0: yeah um, yeah
1: but the ho- the hotel's gone i think it's a a business uh sort of an office building now the the hotel where we first meet Nikki is gone the bar, the African-American bar is gone. Um, the bar where they hang out uh, and Mikey is waiting for the phone call from Kinney and there's the guys playing pinball. That's still there. It's like an Irish sports bar type of place now. Mm. Um, but yeah, it, it is a very interesting snapshot of uh, Philadelphia in the early 70s. It is. Yeah.
0: And yeah. And, and unique that it happens in a, in a place like Philly when you're used to these happening in you know, New York city and yeah. these kinds of stories.
1: Yeah. And I, I think that adds a lot too, as far as, um, without making it clear exposition, but just making it a gangster film in Philadelphia where you don't usually see these types of films and you know, it's not, you know, these aren't New York gangsters. These aren't not, not even, these aren't even North Jersey gangsters, you know, <laughs> uh, they're Philly gangsters, you know, but it's sort of like a way station in between uh the South and New York. Right. You know? You know things aren't popping off as much as they are in New York. You know they're running numbers.
0: Right. Yeah, I'd love <laughs> I love visiting movie locations. I almost, you know, because whenever I visit LA, I always make it a point to visit as many locations as I can, and it it feels like mm-hmm. the places that are still there. It feels almost like hollowed ground. Like you try to imagine. Yeah. You try to imagine Falk and Cassavetes were walking these streets this uh, many years I know. ago. Oh. <laughs> such a little roma- yeah. romanticism about that.
1: Yeah. And while well, it wasn't a location, I, I, I had the pleasure of visiting the producer, Mike Hausman at his apartment in New York, uh, New York city. And it, it was just such a time capsule of all the films he's been on, uh, all the work he's done over the years. He has an amazing collection of photos. Um, so yeah, that, that, that made me very excited to work on the book. Uh, just visiting and getting able to speak with him. He was very generous.
0: Peter Falk, John Cassavetes, Mikey and Nikki, Written and directed by Elaine May.
1: Ma, if anything happens to me, Mikey did it.